committee and to the elders at Trinity Baptist Church for giving me this opportunity to minister the Word of God to you. I confess that I am keenly aware of my own limitations and my inexperience in the area of singleness, both as a father, my oldest child is only nine, and as a pastor, our church is relatively small, so I haven't had the pastoral involvement with singles as some of my brethren have. And yet, when I was asked to preach, I made a commitment to God that unless I see something immoral in the opportunity to preach, that I ought to seize that opportunity as a providential uh, gift of God that I might minister. And although I scrambled for a reason to refuse and immediately came up with a good half dozen names of brethren that I thought would better fit the task, I was assured that my inexperience and relative ineptitude were not reason enough. And that only gives me cause to ask that you would keep me in your prayers as I preach, that God would take my meager morsels and multiply the bounty of his word to your hearts. Let me give to you something of an outline of where I hope to go between now and tomorrow evening. This morning we're going to consider the profile of the single man as found in Genesis chapter 2. And this evening, again in the light of Genesis chapter 2, we're going to consider the profile of the single woman. And then tomorrow morning in our adult Sunday school class at Trinity Church, we'll consider together the subject of sensuality and the single Christian. In the morning worship service, loneliness and the single Christian. And then in the evening worship service tomorrow night, contentment and the single Christian, although I confess that I'm not content with the title of that sermon because I'm going to be bringing not so much issues concerning the subject of contentment in a general way as it's relative to all Christians, but seeking to open up other texts in the scriptures that are particularly addressed to the single believer. And hopefully from those texts, you will be able to derive contentment in a, in a better understanding of the Bible's word to you as a single Christian. Let's take this opportunity as we begin to again call upon the name of our God and ask that he would draw near to us through the course of our times together. Our gracious and our loving Father, it is with great thanksgiving and praise that we approach your throne confident in the virtues of Christ Jesus, our resurrected Savior, our Mediator, and our King. As we open your word, our God, we confess at the outset a trust and confidence in you as a God of infinite wisdom, a God of immeasurable goodness, and a God of incomprehensible sovereignty. We ask our Father that we might cast ourselves afresh upon you and that it might please you for the glory of your Son to come in the person of your Spirit, and open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to your word. 
we confess our native sinfulness. We confess our native blindness and our natural rebellion and disinclination toward the things of Christ. O Lord, conquer our sin. Submit us afresh, we pray, under the throne of Christ Jesus. We plead the virtue of his blood in these things and ask that we might rise up to be godly men and godly women and to walk in a manner that pleases you and brings no reproach to the name of Christ, but rather causes the world to wonder and marvel that we might walk in such glorious moral splendor to the praise of Jesus in whom we pray. Amen. Amen. One more note of introduction. I am using the New American Standard in preaching to you. And so if some of the things I say don't quite match up with what's in your text, uh, that's the reason, because of my NASV. Well, as I've already indicated, my approach this morning as we consider the subject of the profile of the single Christian man is to study Genesis chapter 2 and to attempt to isolate the single man and then this evening the single woman and examine both as they were prior to entering into the married state. We want to identify their respective stewardships and, as well, ascertain the character traits and the virtues necessary for them to carry out these stewardships and thereby derive a profile of godly masculinity and godly femininity. Now, I acknowledge at the outset, particularly of today's ministries, that much of what will be said will be said with a view to anticipating marriage. It is often the case that singleness does precede marriage. And I assume that many, if not most of you, do desire to be married and will eventually marry. And I hope that our studies today will help you regulate your thinking and your preparation for that state. However, the stewardships that we're going to study, and certainly the character traits of godly masculinity and godly femininity, are pertinent to all of God's people, as well as to those who in God's providence may not marry. Now, before we turn to Genesis 2, I want you to see that there is indeed a biblical warrant for approaching our subject in this fashion. Turn, please, first of all, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and read with me from verse 13 and 14. Paul, in this section, addresses the behavior of men and women in the church of God, and as he gives his instruction to the women, he gives a rationale for why it is that he is instructing them in the behavior that he does. And he tells us in verse 13, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. With these words, the apostle tells us that his teaching, the regulation of the behavior of the women and the men, in the New Covenant church, church is rooted 
to what transpired in the creation and the fall. And he, in particular, in verse 13, isolates the man having been created first. And he tells us that the man being created first, and of course then living for a time in isolation apart from his wife, is a fact which is relevant to understanding general roles, in, or rather gender roles in general, and women's roles in particular in the church. So there is, in fact, biblical warrant for us now to turn to Genesis 2 and to isolate the man as having been created first, to see what it was that God had this single man doing and attempt to learn from this profile what godly masculinity entails. Now, although we are speaking particularly to the men this morning, ladies, you ought to be paying attention nonetheless. Because if this indeed is the profile of a godly man prior to entering into the married state, certainly this will answer the question of what you as a Christian woman ought to look for in a husband. You're not going to see the man described in his physique. He's not presented as a head-turner, but he's presented in the fullness of biblical masculinity. And I pray as you ladies listen you might see the profile of the man that you would, under God, marry and eventually be the father of your children. This is indeed relevant to you ladies as well. Now, I again say to you that we are not to be conformed to this world, that we are to have our minds renewed and transformed through the impress of Scripture. And what we see today in this profile, and as well this evening in the profile of the Christian woman, is not something derived from my personal experience, not something derived from majority consensus, not something derived from present social norm. It is, we pray, the Word of God, that in His light we might see light, and as we read in the Scriptures, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this Word, it is because they have no dawn. So let's pray as we look into the scriptures that we might have the light of God illuminating our path. Now, first of all, in Genesis 2, what we're going to see is that the man is given the stewardship of a vocation. The man is given the stewardship of a vocation. Now, by the word steward, we're describing someone who is a chief servant a manager of his master's goods. You see, in creation, God does not relinquish his ownership of all things. But the man is given a stewardship. It is, first of all, a stewardship of a vocation. We want to see, then, what is the sphere of this stewardship. What is the sphere of his stewardship? And the sphere of his stewardship is the earth. In Genesis 2... Verse 5 and 6 we read, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Now these verses give to us the rationale for the existence of the man. 
There was an incompletedness. There was, in the ordering of God's creative work, a legitimate need which resided in the earth itself. Now, this incompletedness is not sinful, but it is legitimate. And it serves as the rationale which would answer the question, well, why make the man? Because there was no shrub of the field, no plant had sprouted, God had not sent the rain, and there was no man to cultivate. But a mist used to rise and water the whole surface of the ground. The earth needed a man. In verse 7 and 8, God forms this man then out of the dust of the ground and names him Adam, we read in Genesis 5. Adam means red earth. The man himself is identified immediately with the sphere of his labor and the point of need in creation. He places him then, you remember, in the garden. In Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Here now we see the sphere of the man's labor identified. He is placed in the garden. He is placed there to cultivate. The Hebrew word there means to submit to and to serve and to meet the needs of something. So here we see that Adam is placed in the garden in a position of dependency upon that garden. But he's also given the responsibility to keep it. And in the Hebrew, that word means to rule and to govern something, to protect something. So Adam is both dependent on the garden and sovereign over the garden. He needs the garden and the garden needs him, you see. There's a legitimate need that he's fulfilling and there's a legitimate role that he is exercising and the relationship between him and the earth, between him and the garden is very intimate. He's made of the very stuff of the earth. His name identifies him with the earth and his place is that of laboring in the earth. Of course, in verse 19, we see that out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. This sphere of labor not only enveloped the earth and the plant life, but also the creatures which were made from that earth, the animal kingdom as well. As Adam exercises his uh, dominion mandate of naming the animals. So we see that Adam in his single state exercises a stewardship over the entire creation, the earth, the plants, and the animals. That's the sphere of his stewardship. But secondly, under this first heading, we want to identify the exercise of this stewardship. The sphere is the earth, and the stewardship is exercised or accomplished by the man's labor. He's given a vocation. It is the labor which is focused upon the surrounding environment. You see, there is an outward thrust to Adam's work. It moves from the man into the world and the environment around him. And it is a labor 
which produces the material sustenance of his life. His labor produces food. God gives him plants as food. In verse 30 of chapter 1, identifying the sphere of the labor again, and he identifies, God identifies the green plant, and he says, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Yet, the production of this food is bound up with Adam's vocation in his cultivating and his keeping of the garden. You recall in verse 5, we're told, there was no shrub of the field and no plant had yet sprouted. There was a need. There was potential, but that potential had to be developed by the laboring man. The purpose was there. It will be food. But the means by which that purpose would be accomplished entailed the labor of the man. Through his labor, the plants would be cultivated so that he would have the food that God had given to him. Now, this is a distinctive masculine stewardship which is again seen in Genesis 3, in verse 17 through verse 19. Why is it that God punishes, his, punishes the couple in the way that he does? Because his punishment aligns with their identity that was given to them in creation. And so the, the man is punished at the very point of his essential identity as Adam, the worker. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. You see, the man's punishment is precisely at the point of his labor and the sphere of his labor, the earth. In the fallen world, the man is yet retained as steward of the earth and yet assigned the vocation responsibilities of labor. But now, through sin, death has erupted throughout all of creation and the man's labor will be imbued with the pain and the frustration of death. But secondly, not only as we turn again to Genesis 2, do we see that the man is given a stewardship of a vocation. Secondly, this morning, the man is given the stewardship of words. The stewardship of words. Now, at the outset of considering this stewardship, we must distinguish between God's words and man's words. There needs to be an understanding of the differences and yet the commonalities of God's word and the word of his image bearer. Differences are obvious. God alone speaks the creative fiat. He alone speaks life-giving words. 
your eye runs through the pages of Genesis 1, you get the definite impression that there's an awful lot of talking going on. God said ten times in that chapter. God called three times in that chapter. God blessed two times in that chapter. A lot of words. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. In Psalm 33 and verse 6. Of course, you remember the opening verses of the Gospel of John. In John 1 through 3, where John tells us that everything that has come into being has come into existence through God's Word. And there John identifies the Word of God as the very second person of the Trinity. God alone speaks the creative fiat. Man can never speak something into existence. God alone does that. And God alone speaks with the supreme authority as the one who has the right to legislate laws. He alone is the ultimate sovereign, the ultimate ruler, the supreme king. In Genesis 2.16, we read of his sovereign word. For we read, the Lord God commanded. The Lord God commanded. He commands his image bearer in a relationship of a father to a son. In a relationship of a king to a subject of a master to a servant. Of course, the governing analogy is that of a father to a son, that he exercises supreme authority in a relationship of love and dependence, of life dependence and nurture that the son has upon the father. Adam is a regal, royal son who is given a stewardship, who is given a domain under the rule and the government of his supreme king who is his own father but this you must see is an exercise of God's supreme and ultimate sovereignty he alone speaks the words of government and authority and rule again in Psalm 33 9 he commanded and it stood fast he commanded and it stood fast though there's differences in the words of God the creative life giving fiat of God and the supreme authority of God. But having acknowledged the differences, brethren, we ought also to see the commonality and the similarity between the words of God and the words of the image of God. Man, as image of God, is created with the ability to communicate and to understand words. This is something that baffles the anthropologists in our day. Where did language come from? When did man begin to write? When did man begin to think? Our Bibles tell us that at the very outset, man was made image of God. And he was given, as image of God, the native equipment to understand, to communicate, and to live in a world defined by the words of God. God defines Adam's world. In Genesis 1, we read of how it is that God uses words to identify the man, to identify the man's labors and his spheres of activity, and to identify the meaning of what it is that God has made. 
God defines man's world and he regulates man's conduct by the use of words. Now also, man then images God with words. And we see man then as a single man given the responsibility of naming the animals, defining, giving meaning by the use of words. In Genesis 1, we read where God called. He would, for example, speak light into existence. There is his creative word. And then having spoken light into existence, we read in verse 3 and verse 5 that he calls it day. Now that word calls describes the activity of God giving a definition to the phenomenon of light. He, ident- he, he brings it into being by His Word. He alone is able to do that. But then He calls it day. He gives a name to it. He gives meaning and definition to it. And when we, dis- when we see Adam naming the animals, it's the same verb. Calling. Naming. He didn't speak the animal into existence. But like his God, whom he images, his words then are used to give definition and meaning to the animals. In verse 19 of Genesis 2, we see that same word, naming, is the same word there, calling. Now, this is what brings us then to understand man's stewardship of words. Man's words give meaning to life. And we see this in his responsibility to name the animals. Notice again, verse 19 and 20 of Genesis 2. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So again, this text identifies this activity of naming as something which Adam was given as a single man. Given the responsibility not to command something into existence, but to give nonetheless meaning and identifying definition to the world around him. He did not create life with words, but his words can determine an awful lot about the meaning of life. His naming is an exercise of his authority, in the same way as God's use of words is an exercise of his supreme authority. Adam's naming is an exercise of his authority under the rule of God, and it is also an exercise of accurate and true knowledge. To name something is to exercise authority over it, but it is also an act of penetrating knowledge. Adam had accurate and true knowledge of every creature in the earth. And he named that because it was his prerogative as image bearer to do so. He images his God in speaking creaturely words which are nonetheless accurate and authoritative in defining his world. His words and his names are the exercise of his rule so that Moses tells us whatever he called the living creature, that was its name. You're not going to argue with him. If he named it, whatever he named it, 
We're not going to argue. That's what it is, you see. What he named it, that's what his name is. It's an exercise of his authority because it is indeed done with sinless, perfect knowledge of the creature that he's been given stewardship over. This stewardship, then, you, you will note, is exercised as well upon the woman. What's the first thing Adam does when God brings him the woman? In verse 23, and the man, what? Said. He starts speaking. He starts talking. That's the first thing he does. Is he begins to exercise the stewardship of his words. And what does he do? This is now bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. He rightly, accurately, penetratingly perceives the truth and the reality of the creature before him. She shall be called. What's he doing? He's naming her. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The first thing he does when God brings to him the woman is he names her. He sees her with true and accurate knowledge and he understands her in relation to himself and in relation to the stewardship that they have together under God over creation. And you notice, ladies, she doesn't begin to argue or debate or question her name. I don't like that name, Adam. That's not what she says. Where do you get off calling me that? That's not what she says. Whatever he named, that's what its name was. And even after the fall, even after the fall, this masculine distinctive and duty to define and give meaning to things by the use of words is seen in Genesis 3 and verse 20. Now the man called, same term, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Even after the fall, this masculine distinctive and this responsibility of exercising stewardship of words is not taken away. Let me suggest to you some speculation. And it is speculation, but I'll suggest it to you, having qualified it with that. Have you ever wondered in Genesis 3, 3, where the words or touch it came from? When Eve responds to the serpent, but from the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. God never said anything about touching it. Did she make that up on her own? Let me suggest to you that it might be indeed that the words or touch it were Adam's words as part of the definition that he gave to her. With a little bit of holy imagination, can we think of Adam having now received the woman as his wife and taking her on a tour of the garden? <laughs> and, well, what's that? Well, I've named that the bird. You see. And there goes the dog. And there goes that. And this tree here is what I've named this. And you see that tree there? That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God has said that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So don't you touch it. And so when Eve 
was confronted with the devil, asking her the definitions of things. You see, she's been taken out of her ballpark. He's asking her to give definition to this tree. So she begins to think, well, what is the definition of this? She takes a bit of God's definition. She takes a bit of Adam's definition. The Bible says she is deceived. She is confused, you see. The devil sees that she's playing fast and loose with the definitions that God had given, even though she's amalgamating that which perhaps Adam had said. He sees a vulnerability. He says, no, listen, why don't you go ahead and define it for yourself? You see? So she does. You notice in verse 17 of Genesis 3 what God says is the reason why Adam is being punished? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Because you, if you will, let her go ahead and redefine that which I had originally defined. And you submitted to her definition and not mine. When you had the responsibility to retain the definition that I had already given it. This issue of the exercise of words is very, very, I believe, profound and crucial in understanding the major difference between men and women. The major difference between men and women, I believe, has something to do with the fact that when the woman was brought to the man, creation already had its names. Words were already associated with reality. Life already had its meanings. She was not given the responsibility to redefine. That was the responsibility that Adam had naming things, was to give creaturely definition. So whenever I listen, friends, to contemporary feminists and so forth, it never fails to amaze me, although now I've become less amazed, but to hear how it is that these ladies are so adamant in attempting to redefine terms, redefine family, redefine gender roles. And in so doing, according to the light of Genesis 2, they have walked out of the sphere that God originally assigned to the woman and had given to the man. The man was given the responsibility of naming and giving meaning to his world with words. But that responsibility to name is not given in a vacuum. Adam is not only given the responsibility of his own words to name the creatures, he is also given the stewardship of God's words. And in this he is given the stewardship of God's law words. In Genesis 2:16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, from the tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you shall surely die. There we see that God gave the man, notice verse 16. God commanded the man in a single state. God addressed the man with his law words. And the man is thereby instituted as the prophet of creation to bring God's law word to the world as the priest of creation to offer God glory as he himself the apex of creation living in communion with God bringing glory to God from all that the world has and is and then to be king of creation 
by ruling and exercising dominion over the world, executing God's law words over creation. God entrusts the man with the exercise of God's authority. The man is to implement God's authority in this sinless world order. You notice he commanded the man. He gave him stewardship of his words, his law words. But he also has given to him the stewardship of his Sabbath words. The stewardship of his Sabbath words. Now I find it very interesting that Jesus tells us that the Sabbath was made for the man and the man for the Sabbath. I believe in your Bibles, the definite article, the, is not usually translated. So we read that verse, it's in Mark 2, we read that verse that the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. But the definite article is very important, because whenever you read through Genesis 2, all you read about until the end of the chapter is, the man, the man, the man. I believe when Jesus is saying that the Sabbath was made for the man and the man made for the Sabbath, Jesus is particularly identifying God's Sabbath ordinance with the man and giving to the man a responsibility of God's Sabbath and God's Sabbath words. Now you say, what do you mean God's Sabbath words? Well, consider Genesis 2, 3. Having completed God's work of creation. We read, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. I ask you, what is entailed in the activity of blessing something? Words, right? Bless something. And you're going to use words. You're going to vocalize something. In giving the Sabbath to the man, God gave man legitimate communion with himself. He gave man the means whereby man might walk in intimate communion with him. Have you ever wondered why it has taken, why it took so long for God to create the world? You say, pardon? Didn't take millions of years and all as we've been taught? No. No. It took six days. That's a long time for the Creator to make this world. Isn't it? That's a Six days. How come? That's a long time. I mean, you can speak and it comes into being. Why take so long? <laughs> because... He was establishing a moral pattern for his image bearer. He was establishing a moral pattern. It wasn't because he was limited in his creative power. He was not. If it was up to just simply, let me show you the power of my creative being, I speak it, it is, there it is, it's done, it's over in a millisecond. Why so long? Why six days? Because there's a dynamic form between him and his image bearer. 
And that is that the image is ethics. Bearing God's image is the very fundamental foundation stone of our ethical obligations to God. God established the world in such a way, built the world in such a way, so as to give to the man a moral pattern of living through the course of time. That he would live in a way and work in a way that would imitate and that would image the activity of God. He establishes the moral example of man who will be the laborer and the worshiper. So God blesses the Sabbath. In other words, although they're not recorded, I believe that there are God's words that were connected with the instituting of the Sabbath by the verbs to bless. And God sanctified the Sabbath. Our Bibles teach us that the fundamental dynamic of sanctifying something is to take it and identify it with the person of God. To bring it into close communion with the very person of God himself. And so I believe that when we read in Genesis 2-3 that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified the seventh day and Jesus tells us that he gave the Sabbath to the man that God still identified that seventh day as a day in which Adam would commune with him through the medium of words in the special personal presence of God in a way that was distinctly different from the normal course of Adam living in the presence of God throughout the course of the week. As Adam would labor, he would see the thumbprints of God on creation. He would glorify God. He would commune with God. He would know God in the sphere of his work. And he would work unto God and walk with God in communion. But there was something distinctively, something distinctively special about the Sabbath. A day that was focused upon the word of God and the being and personal presence of God in a way that was distinct, in a way that was heightened, a way that regulated the time and the labor and the behavior of the man. As the steward of God's Sabbath words, then, we immediately recognize the inherently masculine character of biblical religion. One of the most devastating things about broad evangelical religions that looks like a lifeboat that just dropped off the side of the Titanic, you know what I mean? Full of women and children. Biblical religion is masculine religion. Biblical religion is masculine religion. The apex of created masculinity is the man standing at the head of creation walking in communion with God. And I ask you a question. Who is addressed in the fourth commandment? To remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. Who's spoken to? Who is addressed? The man. The man. The man is given the Sabbath words. The man is given the stewardship of regulating the activities involved with communion with God in that particular special Sabbath dynamic. The male head of the home is responsible to convey Sabbath realities to his family. Therefore, we ought not to be surprised that the Apostle describes biblical religion in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 and 14 beyond the alert 
Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Masculine religion. So we see the man is given the stewardship of words. Responsibility of naming and the responsibility of God's words as well. But thirdly this morning, we also see that the man is given the stewardship of domestic government. The man is given the stewardship of domestic government, and by that I mean the exercise of headship. Anybody else hear that creak? If I suddenly disappear behind the pulpit, you'll know why. The man is given the stewardship of domestic government. As a single man, he is prepared by God to exercise headship over his family and his wife. Now, the man's headship is evidenced in creation, in the fall, and after the fall. In creation, we've seen this headship evidenced in that the man names the woman. It is also evidenced throughout the course of the activities involved in the fall of man into sin. In the fall, the man is continually sustained in a position of headship and accountability. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, they've fallen now. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And by the way, brethren, I don't believe that that is language that describes God taking a Sunday afternoon stroll. I believe that that's the sound of God coming in tumultuous judgment. And they hear that. And look what it says. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Moses makes sure to tell us, yes, they've fallen. Yes, they're in sin. But the relationship of headship is still sustained. It is the man and his wife who are fallen and hiding from God. In verse 9, the Lord God calls to the man, validating him as head of the relationship, calling him to give an account, first of all, because he's the one responsible primarily for why that fruit has been eaten. In verse 16, God then salvages and makes it evident that through the course of the fall and on into fallen creaturely life, the man is still retained in the position of headship. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In verse 17, as we've already had cause to mention, the reason for Adam's being addressed in the language of punishment is because he listened to the voice of his wife. He did not sustain the stewardship of domestic government. He did not sustain responsibilities of headship and that was integral to his eating of the fruit and again it's evidence not only in creation and in the fall but is sustained and evident after the fall as we've seen in verse 20 
where he names his wife's name Eve. And again in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve. They are presented as a couple before the fall, through the fall, after the fall, and as a couple they are identified as a government. They are identified with man, with the man exercising headship of the domestic government. Now, the man's headship is evidenced in numerous other places in the Bible. And the word for head in the Greek is the word kephale. Some of you might be aware of a contemporary debate that is going on over the definition and meaning of the Greek term kephale, head. There are those, and I've been exposed to those in my seminary training, who would tell us that kephale really means source. So the idea is that Adam is the head of the woman in the sense that he's the source of the woman because she was taken from his rib and therefore he's the source of her. And it's not a term of of government or authority. Well, if you've been infected with that perspective, I would ask you to obtain the book by George Knight entitled The Role Relationship of Men and Women in order to read the appendix in that book, appendix number one, written by Wayne Grudem. And Mr. Grudem in that appendix surveys 2,336 citations of the use of kephale between the 8th century B.C. and 4th century B.C. and never once does kephale mean source. It means, as the lexicon says it means, in human relationships of superior rank, a ruler of society, anything which is supreme, chief, and prominent in regard to persons, it means master or Lord. As Sarah called Abraham, kephale, Lord. It's not the word kephale in the Greek, but it's the idea nonetheless. Now, there are many texts to see this relationship, but Ephesians 5 makes it clear In verse 23, where Paul tells us explicitly, for the husband is the head of the wife. The husband is the head of the wife. The husband is the kephale of the wife. And this implies an explicit hierarchy in marriage. But the reality and the truth of this, brethren, is rooted in creation. Now hear that well, because I've also heard Bible teachers telling us that kephale, headship, is rooted in Genesis 3.16. And that it was only in the dynamics of the fall that the man was thereby constituted head of the woman. I admit that in the dynamics of the fall, that relationship is intensified And there is injected dynamics which render that relationship with a lot of tension. But the institution of headship is not in the fall. The institution of headship is in creation. It is part of that which God pronounced to be very good. There's nothing sinful. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing cruel. There's nothing out of whack or abnormal in God having identified and established the man as the head of the domestic government. 
And I submit this to you because Paul, in teaching the headship of men in the marriage relationship, does not draw an Old Testament source from Genesis 3, but in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, what does he draw? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says, this is what it means. This is where it's rooted. Why is this relationship the way it is? For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall leave to his, cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He says, remember everything that happened in creation, this is why. See? He draws from a supportive text, a foundational text, not from the fall, but from creation. Headship abides in the new covenant and abides in Christian marriages and is given an a, a particular redemptive gospel purpose as depicting the relationship of Christ and His church, Paul says, but it's rooted to that great mystery of the one flesh, which is established, brethren, creation. Now, we have insight into that text that we started off with in our introduction in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 11, Paul says, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. You notice what he says. I do not allow the woman to teach. Why? Because I am a rabbi, and in my rabbinical training, we have been nursed in the school of male chauvinism. That's not what he says. It's not culturally conditioned at all. What he says is, I do not allow the woman to teach. The reason is because of the realities of creation. Why? Because she's not given the stewardship of words in the way of exercising an authoritative, teaching, defining ministry. You see it? Nor do I allow her to exercise government, to exercise rule over a man, authority over a man. Why? Adam was first created. Well, what happened then? He was given the stewardship of domestic authority. He was given the stewardship of headship. He was given the position of exercising authority in a hierarchical relationship that is very fundamental and foundational to male-female dynamics. So when he is pointing to the woman's role, prohibiting the woman from teaching and exercising rule, which, brethren, you should immediately recognize as prohibiting a woman from the office of the elder or pastor, why is he doing that? Because he says not to do so would be a perversion of the created order. And as Christians in the New Covenant, we not only worship the God who was our Redeemer, but we worship the God who was our Creator as well. And we don't worship the God who was our Redeemer by twisting and perverting what He has done in creation. The man gave, or rather, the God gave the man responsibilities at these precise points that Paul addresses in this text. We've seen that the fall didn't change that. And redemption hasn't negated that either. The original creation realities 
yet pertain to the Christian in his family and in his church. Well, what can we say are some applications to what we've seen? The first application is this. The single Christian man must be industrious with a holy ambition to prosper in his vocation. The single Christian man must be industrious with a holy ambition to prosper in his vocation. The single Christian man must embrace under God the stewardship of his labor because human industry is bound up with the glory of God on the earth. A holy Christian man must be industrious and labor with a holy ambition to prosper because human industry is bound up with God's glory on earth. The apostle gives us this rule in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 to 24, beginning rather in verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Give yourself to it with a holy ambition to prosper in it. Single men in our day must cultivate a good biblical work ethic. They must develop character traits and personal habits of biblical workmanship. They must seek to cultivate self-discipline, thoroughness in their labor, perseverance at the job to stick to it until the job is done and done well. They must stand against The bachelor mentality which indulges itself in laziness, is satisfied with mediocrity, is haphazard and inept and irresponsible. The Christian single man cannot allow himself to succumb to the vices of the sluggard. Regardless, of whether we're married or single, brethren, as Christians, we have to be good workers. The Apostle tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor, And hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Now look at this. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined lifestyle, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Does it strike you as interesting to notice that the apostle associates doing good work with what? Eating. 
That's exactly the relationship that God established between work and food in the created order. That your labor, the man's labor, is going to be bound up with obtaining the provisions that sustain his life. And Paul says, if you're not committed to working, you're not, you're, you don't deserve to eat. You have to be a good worker. You have to be a good worker. It's part of what God made you to be in creation, and it's part of what God has assigned you under apostolic authority in the new covenant. The Christian man, therefore, must embrace the responsibility of his, of his labor. He cannot allow himself to think, well, all i got to do is just take care of myself and just get by and, and just continue on this dead-end job doing nothing, going nowhere, and, and just getting enough money to, to, uh, to keep myself afloat. And this past... No, brethren, that's not a godly ambition. That's not a holy ambition. The church needs godly men who are going to rise up, who are going to be holy in their industry, who are going to be holy in their ambition. There's not enough young men in our churches today who are standing under the work ethic of the Bible and saying, by God's grace, I'm going to make something of myself. There's too many of us, too many of you, who are willing to allow yourselves to contract for a C and to get by in mediocrity. And it's not godly. Not only must you embrace that ethic, but you must embrace the stewardship of labor because the man must prepare himself to be the main material provider of his family. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, the apostle tells us, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Is anyone a man or a woman in this text, brother? And you look at it, you tell me. Is anyone just anyone, a man or a woman? It's particularly being talked about to the man, isn't it? His own. His household. He has denied the faith. The apostle is addressing the man as the main material provider for his family. Now granted, Proverbs 31, as we'll see briefly this evening, shows the wife as a viable economic uh, asset to the home. And that she does indeed have viable economic involvement in providing and bringing, in bringing econ economic uh, prosperity into the home, provided that the home is properly tended to. But it is nonetheless the teaching of the Scripture that the man is to be the main material provider. Brethren, you cannot tolerate this listless aimlessness in regard to your vocation. You cannot be content to meander along in jobs that merely just let you get by. You've got to pray into your perspective a holy ambition to make something of yourself for the good of the kingdom of God, for the benefit of your family, for the glory of God on the earth. You bear His image, and central to the masculine bearing of the image of God is His labor. Frankly, I believe that the phenomenon of the impress of feminism in our generation has rendered too many young men who are too apprehensive about strutting out, striding out, and making it in the business world the way they should. There's been an emasculation that has taken place because we're too concerned about issues that are unbiblical. And we need to rise up, men, and we need to have a holy ambition in our vocations because it's godly. 
because it images God. My second line of application is this. The single Christian man must strive to develop theologically and to promote the worship of God. And by this I mean that he must embrace the stewardship of God's words to develop theologically. He must embrace the stewardship of God's words. The single state for the Christian man should be a time in which he grows in the knowledge of biblical faith and in systematic theology. He must develop a biblical worldview. He must learn to think systematically, to take a grasp of systematic doctrinal understanding of the Bible. To this end, I recommend to each of you that you obtain a copy of Pastor Sam Waldron's book on the exposition of the London Baptist Confession of 1689, a systematic approach to the Scriptures to understand not merely what the Bible says, but what the Bible teaches in its main emphases. If you haven't been raised in a family in which you learn the shorter catechism, obtain one, use it. Expose yourself to a line-on-line, precept-on-precept approach to a systematic theological understanding of your Bible. Because you, brethren, will be given the responsibility of answering the questions. Lord willing, should God give you a wife and children? The responsibility of giving leadership, spiritual leadership. Don't let those unanswered questions go unanswered. Use the time, use your availability as a single man to pursue these issues, to get a greater grasp of doctrinal truth. By promoting the worship of God, I also mean then, secondly, that the single man must embrace the stewardship of God's worship. That means a single man should be given to full participation in the life of his local church and personally embrace the morality of the fourth commandment. Personally embrace the morality of the fourth commandment as a single man. Act like men, the Apostle says. The church needs masculine men. Men with theological discernment. Men who are committed to biblical love, beyond the alert. Theologically discerning. So that you're not carried away by preaching and doctrines that are not rooted in the Bible. And then personally embrace the morality of the fourth commandment. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God hasn't given you a house yet, but he's given you yourself, hasn't he? And if your house is going to serve the Lord, it better start with you saying, as for me, I will serve the Lord. And that means personally embracing the morality of the Sabbath. I'm going to regulate my life under the realities of my obligation to promote the worship of God. My flesh is not yet one with my wife. I yet do not have children. They are, by God's grace, yet in my loins. But as for me and my potential house, now, in the stage of my development, I will serve God. I will embrace the fourth commandment because it is part and parcel of what it means to be a masculine Christian. Because the man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the man. Thirdly, the single Christian man must embrace the implications of being the head of his household. He must embrace the implications of being the head of his household. 
And by this I mean that you must embrace the stewardship of words and naming. Which means, brethren, you've got to learn how to be a good communicator. You've got to learn how to be a good communicator. It's no, it's, it, it ought not to be confusing to you that women, if I can say this reverently, are generally more attracted to a man's speech than to his physical appearance. They're more attracted to his words, oftentimes even to voice, incl- uh, voice, voice inflections. A woman is much more attracted to the man who's a good communicator than to the man who has the biceps and the pectoral muscles and all the rest of it. She's attracted to a man who can speak words of wisdom, who can speak words of peace, speak words of love, speak words of truth. If you're going to be the head of your home, you've got to learn now and the single state to become a good communicator. Away with this John Wayne personality who rides high in the saddle and is a silent brick in the home. Forget it. You've got to learn to be a good communicator in your marriage relationship. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. And verse 26, describing the husband's love for his wife as Christ's love for his church, that he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And the word there in the Greek for word is rhema. We get our English word rhetoric from that. It's verbal, oral communication. He relates to his wife lovingly, sanctifying her. How? By speaking to her. Communicating to her. Not grunting. Not nodding. Speaking. Speaking to her. Giving to her loving leadership, which is done self-sacrificially to sanctify her, to strengthen and build her up. Gospel love is to be verbally communicated. Because if you're going to be a good husband, brethren, you've got to learn how to talk through problems. You've got to learn how to solve problems. You've got to learn the words of I'm sorry and I forgive you. You've got to learn how to communicate the stuff and the content of gospel love because your purpose in speaking to your wife is that she become more holy. Notice as well, in verse 27, the good communicating husband benefits because the result is that he might present to himself his church that he might present to himself his wife his bride not only is she sanctified but he's satisfied as well provided brethren that you become good communicators and also in the parenting relationship 1st Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11 1st Thessalonians 2:11, describing the activity of a father Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What are the activities of verse 11 of a father? Verbal. You notice it? Verbal, oral communication, exhorting, encouraging, imploring. All related to the Stewardship of words. Stewardship of communication. We cannot tolerate. You cannot tolerate in yourself. If you feel yourself 
to be perpetually given to silence, that you're emotionally stilted as a man, that you're unable to communicate your thoughts and your feelings, and you become self-contained and closed, you better begin to take the steps to open up your mouth and learn to talk your mind and learn to speak the truth. Because if you're going to be a husband, if you're going to be a father, if you're going to be a man, you've got to learn how to be a communicator. I'm not meaning that you've got to be a public speaker. I'm not meaning that you've got to write poetry. I'm saying you've got to learn how to be able to get what's inside verbally communicated to what's outside because you as a man have been given stewardship of words. That's part and parcel of what masculinity is all about. The silent John Wayne figure is not masculine. This also means then that you must also embrace your responsibilities to be prepared to lead and to exercise government. What that means, brethren, is you've got to think through principles. You've got to think through the regulations that will order your home and that will identify you in the position of head of exercising of government so that your home is not regulated on emotional whim and exigencies of circumstance, but that it is regulated on principle. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in a very prevalent common perversion of the home in our day, of the marriage relationship, and it's this. Men marry their mothers. You know what I'm talking about? Men end up marrying their mothers. If they're not prepared to give the leadership then they defer the leadership to the woman. But she will never lead as a husband. If she's going to exercise leadership as a woman, the only leadership that she can exercise as a woman is in the capacity of a mother. That's feminine authority. Feminine authority is expressed through motherhood. Now, if the husband gives the woman the leadership, she's not going to act like a husband and he's going to act like a man. She's going to act like a mother and he's going to act like a son. That's the only dynamic that's, off, that's possible. If he doesn't take the responsibility to lead, she's going to lead, but she's not going to do it like a husband. She'll do it like a mother. And how often, how prevalent is that perversion of a marriage relationship which is nothing other than the extension of a mother and son relationship. Don't allow yourself to fall into that perversion by not preparing yourself as a single man to take the lead and to exercise domestic authority. Well, we conclude. I ask you, brethren, here this morning, and you ladies, as you consider your own potential atoms, I ask you, will you buy into the myth of the beach-baked Bud Light Bachelor? whose only goal in life is to have fun and to gratify his immediate senses and his appetites? Or are you going to learn from God's dealings with Adam when he was a bachelor and develop your vocation, develop your faith, develop your leadership? Regrettably, brethren, models in this are rare as hen's teeth. Very, very few men embrace these things in the single state. But I'll point you to one man who did, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
as a single man, he embraced his vocation. He came to do the will of his Father. I have completed the work that thou hast given me to do. As a single man, he saturated himself with the word of God and his lifestyle, his lifestyle pulsated with the worship of God so that at 12 years old he astounded his teachers with his knowledge of the scriptures and he was continually found on the Sabbath in the synagogues. As a single man, he exercised loving leadership, communicating to his bride, his church, and determining the principles and regulations by which his marriage to his bride would function. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. He'll teach you how to be a masculine man. He's the second Adam. He'll teach you how to live masculine, masculinely for God and the glory of this creation and for God and the glory of the new creation. Follow Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, own your word in the hearts of these dear men and women today. Help them, O oh Father, to embrace the stewardships of creation. Make them to grasp the truth of your word. Help them to order the path of their lives that they might walk even now as single men and women to the glory and praise of Christ Jesus. Take your word, our God, and may it run with freedom and liberty in our hearts as we praise and thank you in Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.